This morning, um, I want to direct your attention to Philippians, the second chapter. And I want us to begin this morning um, reading the first four verses. We read together verses 5 through 11. Uh, so if you have your Bibles, you can uh, open up and look at that. I did not put this up on the screen, but I do think it's important that we hear this because it is Paul's introduction to verses 5 through 11. So I'm going to read it and you just follow along. This is what the Word of the Lord said. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And then, of course, he begins in verse 5, let this mind be in you or let this mind be among you, which was also in Christ Jesus. <clears throat> so what do you want to be when you grow up? What do you want to be when you grow up? Several years ago, many years ago now, <clears throat> I remember asking our son, Aaron, who is about five years of age, that question. We were at Disney World. We were getting ready to leave the United States and to go to uh, the mission field in South America. And so we went to Disney World. We saw Epcot. We saw the world of tomorrow. We saw all of these wonderful, and we thought at the time, impossible things that they said were going to happen. I mean, a phone that you could actually see the person that you're talking to. I just thought, that's, that's never going to happen. So we walk out after that day, and I looked at my youngest son, and I said to him, Aaron, what do you want to be when you grow up? I want to be a garbage man at Disney World. <laughs> really? I said. Why is that? And he looked at his mother and I as though the answer was so obvious it didn't really bear repeating. He said, because it's the only thing I know how to do. Now, honestly, <clears throat> I was expecting more. I mean, we had just seen some of the most marvelous things that the world had to, had to offer. You know, and although... Um, you know, I'm glad to say that Aaron did not eventually choose that job as his job, as needed as it is. He, he chose a different line of work. But I really expected Aaron to come up with something more traditional, more conventional, more exciting. You know, for a young kid, I want to be an astronaut. I want to be a race car driver. I want to be president of the United States. Uh, something that I would expect for any child to say when asked that question, what do you want to be? But, you know, one of the things that we never hear from children, and I think this is fortunate, what do you want to be when you grow up? No child, I can probably say with all confidence, ever says, I want to be the Messiah. I want to be the Savior of the world. And that's a really good thing, isn't it? We would worry about a child who said that. As a matter of fact, here in the United States, we don't even name our children Jesus because, you know, we just don't do that. Now, in South America, they do, but we don't do that here because we say there are certain things that we really shouldn't aspire to. Yet in the New Testament, we are told time and time again that we are to imitate the Lord Jesus Christ, that we are in our lives to try to be like Jesus. You know, Paul tells us that we are to, to grow into the measure of the stature of the 
fullness of Christ. That's to be our goal as followers of Jesus Christ. Paul said to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. And here in Philippians, twice in chapter 3 and chapter 4, Paul says that you should be imitators of me and of Timothy and of Epaphroditus. You should be imitating us in the way that we live our life, what you've seen and heard and from me, that these are the things that you should do because we are imitating the Lord Jesus Christ. And of course, here in verse in verse 5 of chapter 2, he says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. So what does it mean to be like Jesus? What does it mean to measure up? What does it mean that we would be imitators of the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, this morning I want to unpack that passage with just very simple questions, three questions this morning that we're going to look at. The first question is this. Who are we imitating? When we say that we are to be like Jesus, who is it exactly that we're imitating? The second question is this. If we're to imitate Jesus, what is it exactly that we're imitating about his life? And the last question is this. Why, why are we encouraged? Why are we commanded even to imitate the Lord Jesus Christ? So who is it that we're imitating? What is it that we're imitating about him? And why is it so important that we imitate the Lord Jesus Christ in our walk as a follower of of Jesus. So let's jump in this morning and look at these three questions. Who are we imitating when we are striving to be like Jesus? Now you say, Brother Rich, that's a, that's a simple answer to that question. I mean, my goodness, we're, we're imitating Jesus Christ. We're imitating God's Son, the Savior of the world. But you have to understand that we're, we're not exactly even in the majority when we make that, when we make that statement. Jesus, even in his day, he said to his disciples, who do the people say that I am, the Son of Man? Who do people say that I am? Well, the answers now are more myriad than the answers back then. Islam, which comprises about 24%, almost a quarter of the world's population, would say about Jesus Christ that Jesus is a prophet. He is second only to Muhammad, but nevertheless, he's not God. He's just simply a prophet. The Eastern religions, Hinduism, Buddhism, which comprise over 20% of the world's population, would say about Jesus that he is an enlightened teacher, but he's one among literally thousands of teachers who are enlightened, but certainly he is not deity. Even in our own country, there are numerous cults and groups that would say about Jesus that he is a good teacher, that he is a moral example, but he falls very short of being very god of very God. And so when we come to this question of who are we imitating, we have to say that we are challenged, according to the Bible, the short answer is that we are challenged to imitate God. There is no clear statement of the deity of Jesus Christ in all the New Testament than what we find here in Philippians, the second chapter. Listen to what Paul says in chapter, in verse 6 of chapter 2. Paul says that Jesus Christ was in the very form of God, and he uses a word in the Greek, the word morphe, from which we get our word morphology. It's that idea of being, of being something not just on the surface. Unfortunately, a lot of times we use the word form when it's being translated, being in the form of God. But when we think about form, we always think about the outward appearance. But the Greek has a word for that. It's the word schema. 
That's what it means to be something on the outside. But Paul uses the word morphe, which means what it is inside. It is what we have been made to be. That is to say that morphe is the essence of a thing, the quality that makes something what it is. The quality that makes something what it is. We see this, we talk about the metamorphosis of a butterfly. When we see that butterfly, we realize that that was what that caterpillar was all along. In its nature, in its very essence, it was that butterfly. Paul could not be clear. Jesus Christ, he says, has the unique qualities that make God, God. He was, as many translations have it, in his very nature, God. He underscores the deity of Christ in two ways in this passage, I think are very interesting. First in what he said, and then also in how it is said. First in the content, what it is that he said, and then how it is that it was expressed. Let me explain to you what I mean. Paul speaks clearly about Jesus Christ being equal with God. That is to say, Paul states that Jesus is equal in all ways to the Father, a mirror image of the Father. You know, we have that expression, like Father, like Son, that Jesus Christ really is the Father. As a matter of fact, the Jews began their campaign to kill Jesus when in John the fifth chapter, Jesus, they said, claimed that God was his own Father, making himself, and he uses the same word, equal with God. They understood what Jesus was saying. Jesus was saying very clearly that he was equal with the Father. And so Jesus says to his disciples in the upper room, he says, if you had known me, you would have known my father also. Bless his heart, Philip says to him, Lord, show us the father and, and it's sufficient for us. And Jesus said to him, have I been so long with you so long and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the father. He who has seen me has seen the father. Jesus is very God, a very God. Jesus' equality with God was present from the very beginning. Because you see, he says this equality that he had with God was not something to be clung to, to be grasped. In other words, Paul says it's not something that Jesus attained. It's not something that was given to Jesus. It was something that Jesus had from the very beginning. And that when he came to this earth, when he came to be found among men, Jesus didn't have to cling to something, but it was rightfully his. That was his in his very essence. As a matter of fact, John underscores this in John 1, 1, the prologue to the Gospel of John when he says, in the beginning was the Word, speaking of Jesus, and the Word was God, and the, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He cannot be any clearer. Secondly, Jesus' equality with God is seen not only in the content, what was said, but actually in the way that it was said, which is to say... It was sung. This passage in Philippians 2, 5 through 11, most scholars believe was actually an early hymn. It was the way that the church saw the deity of Jesus Christ. You know, we sung some great hymns this morning. How great the Father's 
love for us. And, you know, Susan and I often talk about this, that, you know, well, what are we going to have sung one day when our end comes and we have a time of worship around uh, our, our passing from this world? We realize that hymns are those things that make up, they just comprise so much a part of our life. Susan, as a hospice nurse, has always said, you know, it's interesting that when people are approaching their time of death, they may lose a lot of things in their mind, but it is amazing how often those hymns, those expressions of faith just come out when nothing else can be said, nothing else can be communicated. They still have those hymns in their heart. Well, see, one of the reasons it's so important is because in those early days when the gospel was being transmitted, when it was being preserved, it was often done orally because there wasn't the facility to always write everything down. And so people had traditions that they would pass one from the other. And many times it was done in poems and in songs. And this passage, had this mind among you that was also in Christ Jesus, is actually a poem that they believed the early church sang, which is to say that long before Paul began writing his epistles, this was commonly believed in the church. The church knew. It wasn't something that was added to the gospel. It was at the core of the gospel that Jesus Christ was the Son of God, that Jesus Christ was God. And Paul incorporated that here into this great epistle that he wrote to the Philippians. This is the Jesus that we are to imitate this is the Jesus who is very God of very God, as the Nicene Creed states it. So if the Jesus that we are imitating is God, we are called upon to imitate God, then what is it about Jesus that we are to imitate? You know, certainly we're not to imitate being God, right? I mean, we're not to imitate his deity. There are certain things about God, what they call transcendental or incommunicable qualities of God, his omnipotence, his omniscience, his omnipresence, impossible for us. But there are aspects of the, of the character of God, the nature of God that we are called upon to, to emulate, that we are called upon to imitate. And I believe that what, what Paul is telling to the Philippians and, and, and to us this day about what we are to imitate is this, that we are imitating the one who loves us and commands us to love one another. A moment ago, I read the first four verses of this passage because I wanted you to get this idea of what he means when he says, let this mind be among you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Listen to what he says in verse 2. Paul says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, and of one mind. Paul is equating having the love of Jesus Christ with having this mind among you, being of one accord. It has to do with God's love for us and God's giving us a love that we should share with one another. Now, Paul tells us three key things about this love in verses 7 and 8 that I want to share with you very quickly this morning. The first one is this, that God's love, God's kind of love is incarnational. God's kind of love is incarnational. You know, this hymn is called the kenosis passage, taken from one word, which means literally to empty himself. Jesus gave up his prerogatives. He did not grasp hold of his rightful place. We talked about, you know, Christian talked about God being in heaven and having all of that wonderful, you know, being among the angels who were praising his name. But yet he gave that up that he might come and be among us. He became the incarnation of God here among us in Jesus Christ. And so John 1.4, 14 says this, and the word became flesh 
and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory as of the only glory of the Father, full of grace and truth. It says that he dwelt among us. Now, some of you who have perhaps studied that passage before know that that little word dwelt is a great word. It means that Jesus Christ came and he pitched his tent. Literally, that Jesus pitched his tent among us. Now, those of you who know me know that one of the biggest sacrifices I make in my life is that I go camping with my wife, my wife, at least once a decade. I leave my warm house, my comfortable bed, my carpeted floors, my bug-free kitchen, everything that man has worked for centuries to achieve so that I can go out with my wife and we can go camping. And we were up in Dahlonega this last weekend. Someone said, well, did you go to the AT? I said, yes, I did go to the AT. And they said, have you ever hiked the AT? I said, I would love to hike it as long as I can hike from hotel to hotel. That's, that's the only way I'm ever going to do that. I pitched my tent with Susan when she, she loves to go camping because I love her. You know, that's, that's the sacrifice I made. Well, listen, infinitely more, infinitely more, I mean boundlessly more, is the sacrifice that Jesus Christ made when he pitched his tent among us to come and to live among us, emptying himself. And Paul says here, we are called to do the very same thing. And I've been, I've been thinking about that these days. You know, where am I pitching my tent? You know, which is to say, what am I leaving that is comfortable for me to, to be able to take the love of Jesus Christ to those who need to hear, to leave the safety and comfort of these four walls, to, uh, to leave the routines that are established of, of, of friendships, to to leave those cozy cliques that we all of us have, to reach those who are very different from us, who need to hear the message of God's love. That's what incarnational love is all about, is that we go and, and we say to people, just as Paul said, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. We share that love. But it's a very particular kind of love. It's not only incarnational, but Paul tells us too that it is this kind of love is the kind of love that takes the form of a servant. It takes the form of a servant. Now, there's a huge difference between rendering service and being a servant. You know that. You know, we don't have servants in our culture. But we do, we do render service. Uh, in our culture, it's usually a commodity. It can be given or it can be withheld. And usually if we do it, we expect to be compensated for it. You know, we have servers in the restaurant and, you know, they, they want to be tipped. If we do something of service, then we want in some way for that to be recognized. But Jesus, the Bible says, he didn't just render service. He came to be a servant. And, and it's interesting. It says that he took upon himself the form of a servant. You realize, we talked about this, morphe, he uses the same word. That is, the thing is what it actually is. It is the quality that makes it what it is. Jesus shows us exactly what servanthood is supposed to look like. He didn't just take on the form, the outward appearance. He became, in essence, what it means to be a servant. He took on the nature of a servant, the Bible says. He essentially defined what a servant was to be. And so here it is. You heard it a moment ago in the children's message. I read it a moment ago. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, 
But in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not to his own interest, or in some translations to his own needs, but also to the needs or interests of others. Do you want to know if you're really embracing the life of a servant? Well, this is the test. True servanthood comes down not to the act of service, but to the heart from which the act of service flows. A lot of people can imitate being a servant, but it's the heart that can never be imitated. It is that heart from which true service flows. So let's try that this morning. Let's do a little bit of immediate application. Could you turn to the person to the right or to the left of you and say to them, now you don't have to do this, but think about it. Kind of look out the corner of your eye and see who's sitting next to you. Can you say to that person, you are more significant than I am. Therefore, your needs are more important than my needs. Now, if you're a parent looking at a child, that's probably pretty easy to do because you have to live your life that way. If you're a child looking at a parent, maybe not so much so. If you're a husband looking at a wife or a wife at a husband, I, I hope that that's the way you live. If you're looking at your friend, maybe it is. But what if you're sitting next to someone you don't know from Adam's house cat? I don't know if you say that anymore, a stranger. Someone you absolutely do not know. And can you look at that person and say, you're more significant than I am. Your needs are more important than my needs. Because you see, Jesus didn't just do that. The Bible says that while we were yet sinners, that Jesus gave his life for us. That's what it means to love in the way that Jesus loved as a servant. That is to say that God's kind of love is always sacrificial. And so Paul tells us at the very end of this great hymn of the early church that he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Even death on a cross. In my generation, in the cost of discipleship, it was Dietrich Bonhoeffer who said, when God bids a man come, he bids him come and die. When God calls a man to come, he bids him come and die. And, and we see around the world to this day where literally people have given their lives for the sake of the gospel to share the good news with others. But don't kid yourself. This literal martyrdom begins with an inward dying to self. It is that taking up the cross and following Jesus that is the constant and consistent challenge that Jesus gave to every disciple. You want to follow me? Fine. Take up your cross. Follow me. Leave behind what is in impediments in your life that you might follow me completely. In coming to Christ, we die to our own desires, our own ambitions, our own plans, our own prerogatives. You know what that's saying? We die to the ownership of our lives. We recognize 
that Jesus is Lord, which means that we are not. That he's the one who owns our lives. And our lives, as Paul reminds us in Romans 12, 1 and 2, that we are to present our lives to God as a living sacrifice, which is our appropriate, right, respectful, proper worship of God. Which brings us to the final question. Why do we do this? Why do we, why do we desire to imitate the Lord Jesus Christ to be like Jesus? Why do we strive to imitate him? Well, it all comes back to that original question. What do you, what do you want to do with your life? Something fun, something exciting, something that no one else has ever done? Something meaningful? What about this? That being like Jesus means to live your life for the glory of God. What do you want to do with your life? You know, that's not so much a question of what job you want, what career you follow, who you marry, where you live. The question is, in the context of all of that, are you striving to glorify, glorify God in your life. That's the way Jesus lived. That's the way that Jesus lived. Paul tells us in the very last verse of this hymn that what Jesus did, he did to the glory of God. And every tongue confessed that Jesus Christ is Lord. Not to the glory of Jesus, but to the glory of God. That God would be glorified in the obedience of his Son. That was the goal of Jesus' life. In John 12, 27, he says, For this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And so Paul tells us, whether you eat or whether you drink, whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. The motivation isn't so much what we want to be, but it is making God all who he is in our lives, that God is manifest in our lives, that God is preeminent in our lives, that this is what people see when they See us that we can say, be imitators of me as I am of Jesus Christ. And here Paul tells us how God is glorified in our life. God is glorified when we bow our knee before him and confess his lordship over us. We bow our knee before him that every knee should bow in heaven and earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You know, Bowing the knee is very contrary to human nature, isn't it? It's funny. I watched one of our college students the other day. She was kind of making fun. And it was really kind of interesting because she was talking about, I don't know if I should say this. Well, I'm already here, so I can't stop. Um, how many people, how many guys propose on Sanford campus? It's just epidemic, she said. And when she was doing it, she said, you know, it's just like all of a sudden you'd be walking on campus and some guy's like. And he goes all the way down to his knee and she pops back up. And she did it like five times. And I thought, I can't do that. <laughs> you know, I, I, can't, I can't go all the way down there and get back up. I'd be going down and going over. You know, physically it's hard. But let me tell you something. Emotionally, by nature, it's very hard for us to bow the knee. I don't care how old we are. It's hard to bow the knee. 
Because we always feel like that there's something that we should do, something that we should bring, something that we should offer, some way that we should improve our lives before we come to God. But the truth of the matter is this. Guys, we bring nothing to the table. Nothing. When we come to Christ, as Tim Keller reminded us for years, we come to Christ and we have to say, all I have is nothing. All I need is need. Do you get that? All I have is nothing. But the only thing that I have to have is need. I just need to recognize that I need you. We come with bended knee asking for his grace, confessing that Jesus Christ is the Lord of our lives. Are you living your life for the glory of God? Are you really striving to be like Jesus? You know, living a life of love and service and sacrifice, that's what it means to be like Jesus. But you know what? It is impossible to do that without Jesus in your life doing it through you. It's impossible. That's why we bow the knee. That's why we confess That's why we give up lordship of our own lives and we allow Jesus to be Lord of our life. Because if it's ever going to happen, it's only going to happen because Jesus Christ is living his life fully in an uninhibited way through us, which means that we have to step out of the way to allow God to be God in our life, to be like Jesus. And the Bible says that if we do that, that others will see Jesus Christ in our lives and that they will be encouraged to imitate God by seeing us. Isn't that a, I mean, that is both an amazing statement and a tremendous responsibility to realize we have been given that role of reflecting the Lord Jesus Christ to those around us. But it has to begin with you bowing the knee and confessing that Jesus is Lord. If you've never done that, I want to encourage you this morning to make that pivotal decision in your life. That has to be very first. But if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, then I would encourage you this morning to do what we did. And it was kind of fun to look at those around us and say, you're more significant than me. Your needs are higher than mine, greater than mine. But to do that as a true expression of the love that you have for those around you, to commit yourself to be the hands, the feet, the face of Jesus to those who are around you. I don't know what decision that you need to make this morning, but we're going to have a time of invitation. If you would come and say, I'm giving my life to Christ, I'd be glad to talk with you. If there's other decisions you need to make, as we stand together and as we sing, you come.
It has really been good to be in God's house this day. It's a great hymn to end on, isn't it? I need thee every hour. Well, one of the hours that we have that we want to invite you to is tonight at 5 o'clock for our Bible study. We hope you'll be here. We'll be meeting down in the fellowship hall. And you have in your bulletin all the other announcements of things that are coming up in this week. We hope that you'll uh, plan to be a part of as many of those as you possibly can. Let's go to the Lord in prayer together now as we're dismissed. And after this prayer, we'll sing one last song. Would you pray with me? Gracious Father, we do recognize our constant need of you in our life. We're grateful, Father, that you are ever with us, that, Father, you encourage us in our walk with you, that, Lord, all that we aspire to do and to be for the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ, you enable us to do that through your power, recognizing with Paul that when we are weak, Father, then we are strong because the power of Christ is manifest in us. So bless us, Father, now as we go from this place. Help us to live our lives in such a way that Jesus Christ is constantly at the forefront of everything that we say and do for your honor and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.